electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. I'm convinced we are ready to get this done. The very health of our nation is at stake. The president-elect pushes for an economic relief package worth trillions. We'll hear from one of Joe Biden's top advisors, Jared Bernstein. This country has yet to put these two dual shocks behind us, both, of course, the pandemic and its economic fallout. And this rescue plan solidly does so. Social media struggling to strike a balance between protecting users and protecting free speech. Social's Dilemma with the New York Times' Ben Smith. It's not totally clear that breaking them up solves this particular problem. I think the challenge around breaking them up is that the way companies, all sorts of companies, work in a crisis is they look what the other guy did and they all do that. And what's next for big tech with Aussie Media's Carlos Watson. Whether or not there's a breakup of these, I don't see that coming. But I do see something that feels a lot more like the FCC. Those stories plus IPO fever in 2021. Too much, too soon? When you go back to think about all of the IPOs that took place during uh, the late 90s and 2000, it created a scandal on Wall Street. And I will imagine that we will be having a conversation about a scandal on Wall Street over the next year or two. It's Friday, finally, January 15th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. President-elect Joe Biden unveiling details of a $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. Eamon Javers joins us with the details, and there are lots of details to dig through. Eamon, good to see you again. Yeah, Becky, that's right. There's a lot in this plan. But Biden uh, making the case in Delaware yesterday that the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of actually doing this, despite the massive $1.9 trillion price tag. Here's what he said. We cannot afford inaction. It's not just that smart fiscal investments, including deficit spending, are more urgent than ever. It's that the return on these investments in jobs, racial equity, will prevent long-term economic damage, and the benefits will far out, out surpass, far surpass the cost. So Biden is calling this the American Rescue Plan. He says this is just going to be the first installment of two packages. The other one will be a recovery plan later on in the 100 days. But for now, the leading edge of this is $400 billion for COVID relief. The Biden advisors briefing reporters yesterday said they were surprised by just how bad the planning situation is inside the Trump administration uh, in terms of rolling out the vaccine. So they want more money to do exactly that. Here's what's in the plan. They want $20 billion toward the vaccine program. $50 billion for testing expansion, $30 billion for supplies and protective gear, which they say still uh, nearly a year in, there's not enough of all that. $170 billion for K-12 schools and colleges. Uh, Biden says he wants to get schools open in the first 100 days of his administration. In terms of direct aid to individuals, they're going to plus up those stimulus checks uh, that were $600 last time around. This time, it'll be $1,400 in direct checks to Americans. That gives you the total of $2,000 the Democrats had wanted. 
$400 a week in federal unemployment insurance, $30 billion in rental assistance, a $15 an hour minimum wage. Biden says essential workers have earned that increase and should get it. Uh, in terms of aid to states and businesses, another big chunk in here uh, for the states and localities, $350 billion there, $50 billion for small business grants and loans, and $20 billion for public transit. So a lot in here. And the question now, Becky, is going to be, can this pass on Capitol Hill? And that is a big question mark as of right now. I mean, I, I look at this and just right off the bat, the things that jump out as probably being the most controversial would be the $20 billion for public transit, the $350 billion for the states and localities, and then the $15 minimum wage. Yeah. What, what, what do you think are the ones that will be the biggest issues? Well, I think th those will definitely be the biggest issues. The aids to states and localities is something that Republicans were against last year. They said, look, a lot of this aid is going to go to states that have messed up their own finances over the years through nothing to do with COVID, and we don't want to support that. They called it a blue state bailout. Uh, Biden is arguing here that governors and mayors uh, are really in desperate need because they've got enormous shortfalls in their budgets and the federal government needs to step in and help them. I think that's going to be a key. And there's just a lot of other stuff in here uh, that I think will get some attention as this rolls along, uh, including, you know, Biden wants to hire 100,000 health care workers uh, and get those people trained up to go out and do contact tracing and, and vaccine awareness throughout the country. There's a lot of jobs emphasis in all of this. Uh, and I think you hear Biden talking about made in America and American jobs. Uh, you're going to hear him leaning on that in order to try to generate support in Congress for uh, what is an enormous price tag. And there's going to be an even bigger price tag we expect to come in the recovery package, which will be that big infrastructure piece that a lot of people have been talking to and some people on Wall Street have been really looking forward to. I mean, in, in the real world, I, I worry about a lot of businesses' ability to pay $15 just right off the bat, it, especially given the, the, the very difficult times we're having right now. So that on the one hand, you're trying yeah. to help businesses and you're trying to help small businesses. And then on the other hand, you're increasing their costs for some businesses exponentially. And, and we've made the point that, you know, right. workers, uh, hourly workers in a big city versus hourly workers across where there's such a, you know, there's such a, a, a difference in, in what you know, different small businesses are able to afford, depending on uh, geography. I, I don't, that, that seems like a non-starter. It doesn't seem like a great idea to me either, even though well-intentioned, like so many things. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is going to add to the cost base for those companies. And, and I think if you ask the Biden team about that, I mean, they were making the case yesterday uh, that so many of these essential workers on the front lines uh, were asked to, to take enormous risks over the past year and bore the real brunt of this. They weren't in the sort of luxury white collar category of being able to work from home. They were in the category of you got to right. go out there, get in your truck and take the risk. And, and they are arguing that those workers deserve that uh, right. from society broadly. Now, right. the businesses aren't going to like that. And so that's right. going to be a fight in Congress. Yeah, it's real money. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll thank you, Eamon. Eamon Jabbers. You never liked that. I thought, uh, no. I don't know, I thought you'd like that. I don't, I'm not saying you jabber. I just we've, we've adopted that instead of shot now. So we jab. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Fair See enough. I'll later. take that shot whenever I can get it. We're going to continue this conversation right now on this relief plan and talk to Jared Bernstein, a member of President-elect Biden's incoming Council of Economic Advisors. Good morning to you, Jared. Um, we've been talking about this plan all morning and, and trying to really just gauge whether we think it's going to get passed and what the most controversial points of it very well may be. The question is whether you think you're going to get pushback on things like the minimum wage piece of it. 
I suspect we will, but let me say the following, uh, Andrew, and I, I think you and your listeners uh, may well agree with this. I don't care if you have a D or an R after your name, you're ready to finally get this virus under control. Whether you're a D or an R, you want to hugely ramp up vaccine distribution to finally try to put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. Whether you're a D or an R, you want to open schools and you want to open universities. You want parents to be able to access the child care they need. You want to reach small businesses that haven't gotten nearly enough help. And whether you are a DNRR, you don't want to lay off first responders, educators, and other essential workers. In fact, you'd like to rehire them. So there is a ton of common ground here. I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with the D or the R piece. The question that I, and the reason why I'm, I'm digging in and focusing on the minimum wage piece um, is simply that given the pandemic that is ongoing, given uh, the small businesses that are struggling and hurt, whether despite the other stimulus measures that are going to be rolled mm -hmm. in on top of this, whether the minimum wage piece may complicate that. Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, obviously, uh, President like Biden ran on a $15 an hour minimum wage, which is not an uncommon level in places throughout this country already. And the research on this has shown that it's a very positive uh, program that has its intended effect. By the way, there's also a phase-in involved, uh, typically a, a, a phase-in such that it doesn't go to 15 right away, so businesses have a chance to adjust. But sure, I'm not saying that there's every uh, piece of this is going to be, you know, a handshake across the aisle. I think the important point is that there is more than enough here, especially given uh, Joe Biden's historical uh, prowess at, uh, at bipartisanship that we ought to be able to cut this deal. And you heard Eamon talk about some of the endorsements from all sides of the aisle. That's critically important. Right. People recognize that, that this country has yet to put these two dual shocks behind us, both, of course, the pandemic and its economic fallout. And this rescue plan solidly does so. Jared, I I'm sure you're not going to want to show your hand or Biden's hand in this case, but uh, given that these things are often, as you said, negotiations, uh, people try to anchor uh, to, to, to either side. Which of the chess pieces here, which of the component parts do you think there's any flexibility that the Biden administration may have? Well, I like the way you uh, talked about component parts. I think what's so critical about this plan is the intersection between finally getting uh, our, as, as Eamon said, our arms around the dual shock of the uh, pandemic and its economic fallout. You know, you'll just never get to the kind of rescue and recovery that Joe Biden envisions without finally taking control of the virus and at this point uh, managing the production and the distribution of the vaccine. So I don't think, you know, I'm not going to say that you can't rearrange one piece without the whole thing falling apart, but that's the kind of negotiation that's going to, you know, going to happen in, in coming days and weeks. Uh, what I think is most important for listeners to recognize is the extent to which the plan fits together in terms of virus control and getting the economy back on track, especially for those on the bottom leg of that K. You know, I know uh, on a financial market station, you, fo you focus a lot on the markets, and I get that. But we also know that so many people have fallen behind, essential workers, folks in the bottom half, people trying to make ends meet. You know, at the same time we've had the market results you've reported, we've had spikes in homelessness and hunger. Uh, I, I said the way this plan works together, it can address that. Jared, let me ask you a separate question. And you may think this is crazy. Are you spending enough 
on not just the vaccine piece of it, but on the testing piece of it, because there's going to be hopefully as many people in the country are going to get the vaccine. But there's going to be, it sounds like, unfortunately, a large part of the country that may not get that vaccine. And the testing piece of it is still so critical. Uh, as you know, around the country, it's still yeah. taking two and three and four days to take a test, which makes the test unto itself irrelevant. And it very well may be that a year from now, testing is actually going to be a big part of getting people back into the job. I agree with all of that. And it's a, a critically important insight that you've just shared with us. I think a lot of people are kind of thinking, you know, hey, this is you know, sort of behind us now that these uh, vaccines are getting out. Uh, as you heard the president-elect say yesterday, uh, the rollout has not been optimal by a long shot. And uh, he sat down, he did something we haven't seen enough of at this level of government. He sat down with scientists, epidemiologists, logistics experts, and figured out what it would take. And, and it's a fair question. Are, are we devoting the magnitudes that we need? Well, these experts believe that we are. And I, I think what's interesting here, you know, you started out worrying about whether D's and R's would agree on this. As I, as I underscored, I think everyone can agree that it's time to devote these types of magnitudes to doing precisely what you've just said in this thoughtful way in which the federal government finally takes the lead on making sure that we distribute uh, the uh, vaccine in a way that's going to put this crisis behind us, get us on the road towards recovery. And, and, and on that point, let me just ask you about the additional $1,400, which, of course, brings, makes the check ultimately $2,000, which is what, what I know was uh, the, the initial effort. Do you think that that payment should be more targeted? Meaning for those families who have not lost their jobs during this period, who have continued to work and work from home, do you believe that they should get the $1,400? Is that, is that an efficient use yeah. of money? I think so. I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that there's a $400 enhanced UI benefit, unemployment insurance benefit, for people who lost their job. There's a very significant increase in the child tax credit, which goes almost exclusively to the lowest uh, earning families. Right. And this, according to our uh, estimates, is going to reduce child poverty by half. Take it from about 13 to 6.5%. I think that's... Uh, but, Jared, a, a why, why would you pay... So Jared, why, why should the U.S. government give money to people who have not been affected financially? I, I'm just, that's, that's one piece of it I well, never I understood. Think that's, so, so, no, it's a fair question, but you, ha you have to recognize that the checks actually begin to phase out for uh, single filers under 75000 now, under 75,000, there's a lot of people who can use the help. So, yeah, and, and by the way, if you look at the percentage changes in after-tax income, this is a highly progressive piece of the plan, these uh, direct payments. In fact, they, 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 they raise the income, after-tax income, of families in the bottom fifth of the income scale by double-digit percentages, something like 15%, and they do, you know, nothing for the top 1%. So, you know, you, I can see where people might want an even more progressive distribution there, but I think this, uh, this gets the water to the fire in a useful way. Hey, Jerry, we always have this discussion, the two of us, and I miss you, and I, 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 we're going to be seeing so much of each other now that uh, uh, i got to throw up my leg. Uh, but this, we always talk about this minimum wage stuff, and you always got your end-all, be-all studies that show that it, it doesn't impact business when you raise it. And that I love when you said that you just give the, the businesses a little bit of a heads up, and they can prepare for the, the $15. I like that's all it would take. In your studies... Did you get to any level where it would be a problem? I mean, because if you didn't, 
I mean, I'd like to go to maybe fifty or a hundred dollars an hour and really bring in the good times. Just really I'll, let I'll the good times that. roll, Jared. Why can't we do that? Uh, I'll suggest your idea to the president-elect, uh, Joe. Um, I, I think I think the way to think about this, and look, it's a fair question. <clears throat> I think the way to think about this is how many people in the economy does the proposal affect? You know, if I proposed a minimum wage of $5 an hour, it wouldn't make any difference because it wouldn't affect anybody. True, if right. I proposed $50 an hour, that would uh, cover, you know, 90% of wage earners or something like that. So, you know, obviously that's too high. So you want to look at the effective range. That's actually the way these academic studies work. And if you look at $15 an hour phased in, as I mentioned, the range of people, the effective range, the percent of workers that that hits, you can call it the bite, uh, is actually very much in keeping with all the other increases that all these other studies are looking at. And that's why I can confidently say that it will have its intended effect of raising the living standards of low-wage workers without causing the kinds of disemployment effects that I know you worry about. Jared Bernstein, uh, looking forward to spending a lot more time talking in the future. Next on Squawk Pod, social media under scrutiny again. Big tech platforms have cut off President Trump. What happens to their policies now? Carlos Watson of Aussie Media. I don't know whether it's a commission that does it. I don't know whether you support other kinds of changes, but I think you've got to do something to limit misinformation spread on the social media platforms. I don't think you can hide behind free speech. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. The attack on the Capitol last week still rippling through the tech world, raising a lot of questions about rules on social media, boundaries and power after President Trump was banned from some of the platforms. Joining us right now is Carlos Watson, Aussie Media CEO and Ben Smith, New York Times media columnist. It's good to see you both. Um, I'm going to start with you, Ben. And, and the, I think the real question ultimately in, in all of this, and we've seen Jack Dorsey tried to explain himself on, on Twitter uh, and whatnot. Is this a free speech issue or should we be talking about this as a tech power monopoly issue? I mean, you know, it's both and it's neither, right? I mean, it's, it's a free speech. I mean, the tech, these tech platforms exert an enormous amount of control over the public square, particularly when they all act together, when they all race to the same place the way they did here. On the other hand, you know, the, the people protected by the First Amendment here are the platforms. That's the reason they can do this. The, the sort of the free speech law applies to them and, and Twitter's free speech rights allowed to do whatever it wants, including kicking Donald Trump off here. Um, Carlos, if you could be king for the day, what would you do? What's what's the, what's the uh, Salmonic solution? Yeah, I, I think you do end up with with regulation of some sort. I think there's no doubt that we've had problems not just in one election, but in multiple elections, whether it's been with neo-Nazis, whether it's been with mistruths around COVID, whether it's been with mistruths around election fraud. So I think you certainly have to have some. You see critics like Roger McNamee, the former Facebook investor, saying we should be looking at the code um, and stopping kind of viral problems, that we should do other sorts of things. 
Andrew, I think you've got to do you got to do something. I don't know whether it's a commission that, that does it. Um, I don't know whether uh, you support other kinds of changes, but I think you've got to do something to limit uh, misinformation spread on the social media platforms. I don't but, think but what you can do you, hide behind. But how speech. do you do it? And how do you do it in real time? I mean, honestly, I, I think that we all talk about, you know, what we wish could could happen. But the reality of, of these situations is you have to create algorithms effectively. And it's, you know, sometimes what you see and what I see, I can read a sentence and you can read a sentence and we can read them differently. Yeah. So I think and that's not an excuse you- at all for, for some of the, the terrible things that I've seen online. But I, I think that that's part of the issue in this country right now. Yeah. So I think the three things, if you were going to think about immediate things, and I think Ben has written about this a little bit and you've seen in the report, number one, you'd set up some kind of commission that looked at the uh, various social media algorithms and look at their ability to limit misinformation. And you'd have some regulation of that. That'd be number one that you'd do. Uh, Number two, you'd cause them to do even more tagging than they currently do when you see something that's off. And number three, you'd force them to be more aggressive about kicking off repeated violators. I think those would be the first three things that you'd think about doing if you were trying to meaningfully limit uh, misinformation, fraud, abuse, amplification of untruth on the social media platforms. Ben, you break these companies up. Part of this issue is about power, that there's there's only a handful of these companies and they seem to have an enormous amount of power. The question is, do they have too much power? And if you broke them up, how would you? I mean, you know, you, it's not it's not totally clear that breaking them up solves this particular problem. I think some of the things Carlos was talking about, particularly this kind of transparency, could help. But even the kinds of regulation people are talking about, nobody's saying that the government would regulate the details. They're saying the strongest proposals in Europe are saying they'd force the companies to set up clear procedures. And I mean, I think the challenge around breaking them up is that the way companies, all sorts of companies work in a crisis is they look what the other guy did and they all do that. So you saw all these companies race to exactly the same place. I mean, one of the things that is happening now is you're seeing the the ecosystem splinter a little. There are far right and just right wing voices moving to other to other platforms. There's the possibility of more distributed kind of more open source technologies where you could just have a less just a less centralized landscape. I mean, you know. All sorts of other problems will come from that as well. Well, that was the that was the next question I was going to ask. You're ta- you hear Twitter saying they want to create a decentralized platform. The more decentralized you get, frankly, the more encrypted you get, the the less control you're ultimately going to happen or have rather, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was sort of interesting to hear Jack, the Twitter CEO, just kind of like wishfully think about this stuff. I mean. You know, the issue right now is that he he and, and Mark Zuckerberg and a couple others are actually running these companies, have to make a bunch of decisions, um, could be a lot more transparent about it. You, you, and Andrew, I think it's almost inevitable that a Biden yeah. Justice Department, in the same way that, that uh, the Clinton Justice Department looked at Microsoft and big tech almost a generation ago, it, it's almost inevitable that they're going to follow what you're seeing in Australia and Germany and other parts of Europe and insist that there be some meaningful regulation. So. I don't think that's a question. I think you heard Tim Cook even a couple of years ago uh, say that there's going to be meaningful regulation. And to your point about whether or not there's a breakup of these, I don't see that coming. But I do see something that feels a lot more like the FCC and their management of broadcasters applied to social media giants. And I don't think that that's that that is that far outside of the mainstream or the American experience. Right. Carlos, do you think that users should own their follower list, that they should own the follower. And the reason I ask is President Trump, by being booted off Twitter, doesn't just lose his voice. 
He loses his connection to tens of millions of people that he built up over many, many years. Uh, you're in business. You have a follower base, Carlos, right? Uh, on Twitter, now on YouTube and all sorts of other social media platforms. If they said, you know what, Carlos, good luck to you. You're done. You, would, you, you overnight could lose access to that entire audience that you arguably built. You know, the dirty little secret is that, uh, Andrew, they've already been doing that for the last four or five years. Ben is smiling because we all saw it happen. Facebook brilliantly uh, brought a lot of people onto the platform in the early 2010s. People built up followerships and then they changed the algorithm so that you only got regular access uh, to most of your followership if you continued to pay. So I think to some extent, some of that's already happening. I think people are realizing that it really is, is within the purview of these social media companies, how much you truly control. I mean, you see it even with email lists. Currently, right now, we feel like we've built up an email list, our contact, our followers, we've got full access to them. But you do as long as Gmail doesn't change the rules on that or doesn't limit how many people you can send to. So I think there's a little bit of illusion in terms of people believing that they can maintain that. And I think it will lead to right. some splintering and some creation of new kinds of platforms, new media companies, originally around the right, but ultimately it'll impact the rest of us. Right. We got to end it here, unfortunately. It is a lo longer conversation. Ben Collis, thank you. I'd love to have you guys back yeah. to continue it. Talk to you soon. Good to see you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, 2021 has only just begun, and the IPO market's already on fire. Petco is like a hot fly, a high flyer. I mean, they sell dog food. I mean, I want to get in on that. Pet cat food. Yeah. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Orkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Joe? IPOs, Andrew, you're, these uh, must have given you a, uh, a lot of agita uh, again yesterday for the, the poor companies that didn't get what they, you know, what, 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 what they deserve because they're all doubling, right? So anyway, time now for a checkup on this week's big IPO. Shares of Petco jumped 63% on the first trading day, the IPO. Uh, price at 18, opened at 26, closed at 29. 40 shares of online clothing re reseller Poshmark ended the day up more than 141% after yesterday's IPO. The stock price at $42 a share, opened at 97.50 uh, and closed at 101.50. And here's a look at a firm holdings, one we've, uh, we were talking about. The stock rose nearly 100% in Wednesday's IPO, uh, closing at 97.24. It surged again yesterday, up 18%. And... It's up again 
in the pre-market. So there's there's a lot of excitement Joe, about IPOs. You, you can't Joe, control I'll it. I'll tell you, I, though, yeah. You can't, you can't, well, I don't know if you can't control it. I, I actually think part of it is that you can control it and that there's a, being a decision made, which is to some degree what we talked about yesterday, which is uh, that they are controlling it and this is how they're controlling it. You know, when you go back to think about all of the IPOs that took place during uh, the late 90s and, and, and 2000, um, it, it also created, beyond what, what happened to the companies themselves, it created a scandal. It created a scandal on Wall Street. And, and, and I will imagine that we will be having a conversation about a scandal on Wall Street over the next year or two uh, when this is all said and done. Because the other thing that's happening is that there are hedge funds, obviously, and other investors who are making a lot of money, and they're making a lot of money quick. And getting access to these IPOs at these prices, uh, knowing that they're going to jump 100% in a day, and to not believe that what you're going to find out later is that there were quid pro quos and all sorts of trading among the banks, because there's the client of the bank on one side, the investor, there's the client of the bank on the other side, which is the company. I think there's a, there is a much bigger conversation to be had about well, what's happening here. Well, it's and these types of, and these types of jumps, it's the same thing that happened 30 years ago. When I was, I, and, never and, right, got, a, I never got an IPO. Our entire brokerage office would get 100 shares of an IPO, and they'd get, and, and the, I remember the biggest producer in the office, he would get his 100 shares, and he would give it to his favorite right. client, and it would double, and it would be like a, it's not that different than a discount that you give on someone who gives, uh, you know, who did a lot of trading back then. You'd give them a, a commission discount. This was a way of defraying some of the costs that they had paid uh, over the past year, but it's always been, you know, there's been a wink and a nod about who gets these things, and, and uh, I don't know whether it's a dirty little secret. But Andrew, that's if you, if you of, remember, well, I was just going to say that's when, when you were saying that you spoke with Max Lovshin and, and he was saying that they want right. certain investors. I mean, that gets back to that same idea of placing these things, giving it to preferred investors, preferred clients, however that goes out. I mean, that's the frustrating thing to people on on Main Street is if they're the retail investor trying to get in on these things. There's always this like feeling of a club that. Everybody else is in on it, and you're just kind of the guy left holding it and chasing after it. Oh, there's, there's no question. I think that there's, there's two issues here. There's who the companies want to be their shareholders, which in some cases that you don't actually necessarily want retail or what's called the hot money in, in terms of hedge fund world. You want I know, then big don't institutions do an IPO. holding Keep holding it private. It. So, so that, that's, an, that's, an, that's a very, very interesting point. But the second point I was going to make relating to what Joe was mentioning about the, you know, discounting or, or offering some kind of advantage to, to the client, it's offering the advantage to one client over the expense potentially of the company. And the other piece of it is there were a number of banks, as you remember, now close to 20 years ago, who were both investigated and prosecuted over uh, yeah. these type of issues. So the idea that this is sort of a I scratch my back, you scratch yours and it's all fine. I don't, I'm only suggesting that as we're watching this play out, that there are probably some important questions to be asked about this whole program, because there's something right. uh, there's something that people are going to look yeah. back at at some point and say, maybe what this was, is a little amiss. What was the whole Quattrone yeah. scandal? Do you remember Sorkin or Becky? Uh, I remember it well. I remember it very well. It, He's still around. The, the He's case still around. against the weren't you, Andrew? I was there. I, I, I lived at both, both cases because uh, there was a mistrial. So there's two trials. Uh, the case against Frank was was related to obstruction of justice, but the 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 underlying issue that they were trying to investigate, and actually at the time they weren't really investigating Frank, so the whole thing was sort of an oddity. Uh, and 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 if you remember, the case was overturned in the end on Frank Quattrone's behalf. So take him out of it. But 
Credit Suisse uh, at the time, which was then Credit Suisse First Boston, effectively was accused of trading, uh, of, of not trading, but basically taking, uh, trying to get big clients and big CEOs to get IPOs, meaning you'd say, I'll give you CEO, you'll be my client, I'll give you money, I'll give you access to other IPOs if you give us your IPO. There was all sorts of favor trading going on. Right, yeah. uh, at least that was the allegation. Uh, and there were fines and, and, and more paid along the way. Nah, none of that goes on anymore. Yeah. No way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Andrew, you said you, you bet we're investigating a scandal on, on Wall Street in the next year yeah. or two. And all I can think is yeah. I can't think of the last time we went a year or two and didn't have a scandal. But right. I think you're right about the questions that are going to be asked around this particular situation. And I, I think those questions will be coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, anyway, you guys. can't tell Petco is like a hot fly, a high flyer. I mean, they sell dog food. I mean, I want to get in on that. And cat I mean, food. Who, yeah. yeah. I mean, how did they think of that? It's awesome. Wow. Hmm. I remember Gabelli, though, 30 years, also 20 years ago, said two things. Coffee, and this was like at the beginning of Starbucks, coffee and, and, pets. and pets. That's right. And he said You're these right. are both mega trends. And, uh, and little did we know that, that Andrew... Finally might have gotten, uh, did you get a dog, Andrew? Who's the, who is this here? What? Did you get a dog? I don't know. That's no, oh, not yet. I thought you were serious. I, I, <laughs> I say yet is still the operative word. I didn't in part because that. my they, children may be I, watching. That, that, but I think we should. I'll bring, the, uh, I'll bring the... Uh, <laughs> I'll bring Cooper on, on TV. The, the boys would, and, the, and, and Sydney would like that. What is that, a fish? No, we've got, we've got the here. greatest bunny in the world. We'll do Why animals. We'll, we'll do an animal that, show. That's your, your answer for a pet sorkin, a, a bunny? Is Hold one on. Of those with the, with Get the, the ears cat back. Bunnies are Be cute. Becky, we need to see the Bunnies are cute. They work. It's good for ratings. We'll bring the bunny on later. We have the cat on now. I said that if you, if you get home and there's a big pot on the stove boiling, do not go over there, or at least tell oh. the kids to go to the Not this room. bunny. This is huh? the best bunny no, you'll ever no. meet. Bunnies are good. Not this bunny. Yeah. All right. If you see Glenn Close in the neighborhood, run. Blue Origin, the space company founded by Jeff Bezos, now nearly ready to take passengers on a ride to the edge of space. People familiar with the plans telling CNBC that Blue Origin is aiming to fly its first crewed flight into space by early April. Yesterday, the company completed the 14th test flight of its new Shepard rocket booster and capsule. The eventual goal of the suborbital system is to take passengers and research payloads past what's called the Kármán line. That line is where space begins. The flight takes 11 minutes, and the capsule will spend several minutes in zero gravity before returning to Earth. It's all a fully autonomous with no pilots on board. So uh, oh, good. I don't know if you guys are signing up for the, oh, good. For the first ride there or not. No, yeah. no. I've got, uh, you got Apple TV, I'm sure, uh, Andrew. And uh, I do. When it's in sleep mode, the, you are going around the, 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 some of the shots are going around the, the like the oh, satellite. Oh, depending on which shots you, yes. And that, yep. that works, that's great for, it's a 70 plus inch TV, and I basically am doing the same thing. That does uh, it for you? Okay. It doesn't take quite so the. you've been there, the, done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Give me something that I haven't done. Uh, yeah, right, not impressed. <laughs> You're one, Andrew. You're still dealing with the commercial airliners. You're not going up in this thing. You're not. Not until they beta test this thing till you're 90, right? <laughs> Would you? You know, we gotta, let's, get past, let's get past COVID. I, I don't want to go on this thing and have to wear a mask. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I was just, oh, the Hard Rock is back here on my shot, and their big advertisement is Hard Rock Mask. I mean, where, what world are, where, it's just, who would have thought this a year ago? It's just, wow, I've got to get me one of them Hard Rock Masks. And that's Squawk Pod for this Friday. Thanks for listening today, all week, whenever you do. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tell us what you think on Twitter at Squawk CNBC or leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Take a rest this long weekend. The markets are closed on Monday in observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We'll meet you back here on Tuesday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.